Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Jay Cutler. Started a new podcast called Uncut with Jay Cutler. Most of you know me from the NFL. Some of you have seen me on Instagram. And some of you know me from the reality TV world. Each week I'm taking you along with me as we discuss football, trending topics, and whatever's going on in my life each week. I'm bringing along people that are special in my life. Former teammates, friends, and some new people that I like and respect. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Podcasting? I think I'm doing this right. Can't wait to get started with you. Go subscribe now. Uncut with Jay Cutler. Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Wu, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Sam Vecini of The Athletic, and the primary crux of our conversation is the introduction, as I think of it for me, to the 2022 NBA draft class. Of course, we don't know exactly who's going to be in it, but the top guys on Sam's board, who to watch going into the season. And then we also transition into the just drafted 2021 class, the rookies in now, who he's excited to see, who has a real chance to break out this year. Great conversation, runs a little bit over an hour. Hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Danny, this is the first time that we've been on this podcast since you've been married. I could not be happier for you, and I could not be happier to be here. Does it feel different for you to have guests on the podcast now that you are married? Not particularly, um, but it is different now that the season's getting going. And, you know, part of the adjustment for me was getting, I mean, I got back from my honeymoon less than a week before the start of the regular, or basically a week from the start of the regular season. And it's like, oh, I'm running now. Like, this is, is, you know, you, you, all the stuff that happens when you're planning a wedding and executing a wedding and a honeymoon and all that. And then, and then you're like, you're trying to do the like, calm down is like nope just kick back in but that's honestly how i run so i think it's not it's not that bad it's just it's just different yeah it's true no you're you're in a great space now congratulations Mm -hmm. we're recording before you're about to get started with nate on a nba cast which is fantastic like Mm -hmm. we're we're in a good space here i love it i'm excited we are and i want to start this and it'll be interesting to see if you agree with me so it's just a weird thing that i noticed over the last few weeks i know honestly i know about as much about the upcoming NFL draft as I do the NBA draft, which is to say not very much because it's been a couple of years since I've been able to scout guys in person and everything <laughs> else like that. But there's an interesting parallel that I've, I've noticed just in my casual looking and I want to run it by you. So 
Uh, I'm, you know, our, our mutual colleague, Tim Kalkami of The Athletic, mentioned that it's like there are a lot of teams that need quarterbacks, and this is a weird draft year because there aren't that many quarterbacks. And I don't think there are yeah. as many NBA teams that need point guards, primary ball handlers as that because there are a lot of good ones already in the league. But it seems to me, looking through your looking through your board, looking through a few other ones that are out there, that preliminarily, this doesn't look like the draft for you if what you're looking for is somebody to run your offense. No, I, I straight up do not think that it is. Most of the good players in this class are big players. Uh, they're six foot eleven, six foot ten, seven foot tall. Uh, some of them have a chance to be shot creators. Some of them don't really. Uh, th- there are a couple of guys that like I'm somewhat interested in because they're good perimeter players that are like strong, high level scorers. But I don't know, man. Like I, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable with like you know Jaden Hardy straight up running your offense, and then you get beneath that class, you get like Jaden Hardy and Jaden Ivy. I mean, like Ty Ty Washington's like not crazy athletic and might not be able to run an offense. He might be more of like an off guard, uh, you know, like Bryce McGowan's has some like combo ability. But again, not a guy that's going to run your offense. The the top rated like true lead guard that I've heard um, or that like that I have ranked right now is Kennedy Chandler out of Tennessee. And I'll be honest, like I've heard pretty mixed things about him from scouts that have gone down to Tennessee and seen them play. Like I've heard better stuff about Justin Powell, who's like a six foot five, uh, like combo floor spacer, you know, I I guess like shot creating, you know, combo guard is the best way to put it, uh, who is at Auburn last year than I have about Kennedy Chandler. So it's. It's weird. It's a, it's a little bit weird trying to navigate where the lead guards are right now in this class, for sure. I think that that, that that specific statement from Tim is right, because I do know quite a bit about the NFL draft as well. I keep my eyes on that, um, mostly for like the crazy fucking dynasty fantasy football league that I'm in with my college friends. And shit, like right now, from what I like gather, it's like Malik Willis and Malik Willis probably shouldn't even be a top 10 pick, but he'll probably end up going there because there's just a total dearth of point or a total dearth of quarterbacks. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And you wouldn't expect those things to run in parallel, especially when you consider, I mean, if this matters or not, that there's the age difference between when players go into the NFL and go into the NBA. It just, it happens. And it's the, you're, you're always tied to the supply that is available. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that there should be a distinction between not having those specific players and not having good players. Like, I think this draft has a lot of intriguing talents and there will always be players that blossom, particularly when you think about the precursor for a lot of these guys. If you're a college freshman, think about what your life has been the last couple of years and your potential exposure. I mean, I think maybe the best example of that of the guys that I'm at least a little familiar with is AJ Griffin, where it's just like he hasn't sure. played, he hasn't played much. And so that is and he's so, hurt now by the way oh jeez <laughs> yeah um, he has a uh, injured knee at the moment geez. so he's gonna miss a month uh maybe ready for the start of the season probably not though it seems like that's incredible um, yeah he hasn't he hasn't played in like all but one competitive setting in 18 months like it's crazy but so do you so just to, to to kind of fact check it do you how do you feel preliminarily i mean we're we're still you know these guys as a lot of these guys haven't played a college slash g league ignite or whatever game yet so far how do you feel about this class just preliminarily versus the last couple? Do you like it? Do you think it's okay? Do you think it's weak? I like it much less than the 2021 
draft class, which I thought actually had some like pretty interesting depth, and I obviously loved the top of that class. The the 2021 draft class, I think, has legitimately four all-stars uh, that are awesome. And then I liked Scotty Barnes and Jonathan Kaminga. Like, Jonathan Kaminga would absolutely be a top I wouldn't have him ahead of Paulo and Chet, but I'd probably have him three right now uh, among prospects in this class. So, and frankly, like once we start considering positional value, I would, it would depend on how Paulo and Chet look this year, given that Chet is seven foot one and extremely skinny. And given that Paulo is uh, really creative, but has some athleticism concerns. So, I'm not wildly enthused by this class at the moment. I also think that last year there was some real depth in the class. I I felt like you get good players into the 40s, and I think the players will absolutely emerge and will become, uh, over the course of the year, players worth drafting in the 40s that like I will end up with first round grades on the teams just like aren't quite as high on uh this year like I'll be honest with you like right now I've probably got 14 first round grades that like I feel good about that I'm like okay I think this player is definitely going to go in the first round and, and like, that's, and that's like, less than you usually have at this point in the year because I know a lot of times you just need to watch definitely. more and there are guys that you like yeah like sometimes I'm wrong on guys like BJ Boston last year like I definitely had a first round grade on him going into the year and I was just wrong right like he was not that guy um, and you move off of that, you always make adjustments. And I tend to be a little bit more aggressive uh, with adjustments than other people are. Um, but take someone like Bryce McGowan's this year. Uh, Bryce McGowan's is like six foot seven. He has a six ten wingspan. He's more combo guard than wing, but has like real ball handling abilities. He's super tough. He's very aggressive. Uh, loves to play through contact. He's also 175 pounds right now and is uh, a questionable shooter at the moment. Uh, if he has his feet set, he's really good. If he is trying to get to a step back on a pull-up, he has kind of an unnatural lean to his left with his jumper. Like, he could fly up the board and be a top 12 pick. He could, like, shoot 37% from the field this year and 32% from three and end up having to return for a second season. Like, I think that there are a lot more questions like Bryce McGowan's out there who has a lot of talent and who I think will be an NBA player at some point. But it might not be this year, and what do you do if it's not this year? Yeah, that's that's a great point. So let's, let's get into the top of the class, though. I, I know that there has already been some chattering about Paulo Banchero and Chet Holmgren and possibly Jalen Duran getting into that group with his crazy uh, measuring or measurables at the um, Memphis Pro Day. How how would you let, let's start with let's start with the guy that you have number one, Paulo. Where how do you see his strengths and weaknesses both this year and more kind of for me more importantly going into the NBA? Yeah, so Paulo Boncaro is one of the he's one of my favorite prospects I've ever evaluated. Like you know how sometimes you got you just like have favorites. You know that they're not the best. Yeah, it, so, in the world. so this is sort of like your favorite TV show versus the best TV show. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Like I love the movie. Like I love Undercover Brother. Right. Like I think that movie is absolutely hilarious it's one of my favorite comedies from the 2000s i know it's not like the best movie in the world 
right? It's just funny, and I love it. Paulo's like a higher level player than that. Uh, Paulo is a genuine like top. You know, he's, we'd probably go like four or five in most drafts. I think. Uh, but again, like I have him at number one right now because I think that there are just more questions about the other players. But the reason that I say he's one of my favorite players I've ever evaluated, I've seen him a lot, like from the time that he was in 10th grade. And he had more like defensive rotational awareness and consistency than like any high-end five-star prospect 10th grader than like i'd feel like i'd ever seen really high level passer really high level uh understanding of how to play the game in a way that leads to wins and then over the course of his collegiate or high school career he started to develop into a legit perimeter big who also can handle the ball and can create his own shot now. He's still like a bit of a questionable shooter in my mind. Like, I don't know if he's going to shoot 35% from three this year quite yet. I think he like could, and I think he could get up to like 36, 37, but I don't know that for a fact yet. I want to see where it settles in. Uh, but I'll tell you this, like he can grab and go on the break and lead the break. And then he can do like a quick inside out dribble into a crossover into like a sidestep to his left step back three pointer. And I feel like, okay about it, especially for a six foot 10 kid. That's 18 years old. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan. The, the question is he's not a super athlete. He's not like crazy explosive. He's six foot 10. So he's kind of in that middle ground between being like a true four and a true five. He doesn't have like crazy length or anything. He's almost certainly going to have to play the four in the same way that like Julius Randall, like has to play the four uh, to have successful defenses out there. But I love his offensive playmaking. And I think that Boncaro is starting from a level of such high level, like rotational awareness defensively that I, I just think that he'll make it work at the next level defensively. And then you add the offensive skill. Uh, he's going to be a real mismatch problem for any team he plays in college basketball this year. What's well, something you brought up with Boncaro in your profile uh, in, in the write-up that you did of him that I always love. And I mean, you and I've talked about this a lot over the years is players who are aggressive and skilled attacking mismatches. It's part of what makes Jokic so great. Part of what made him the deserving regular season MVP last year is that a lot of times now you think about the way that the different coverages that teams can use and that if you're using Boncaro as a screener, then if the other team wants to switch, then they're oftentimes you're conceding a you're conceding a matchup to one or both players involved in the action in order to avoid the seam, avoid you know the scrambling back and everything. Incidentally, Jokic is a good example yeah. of that too defensively. And so one of the best ways to attack that system is actually, I mean, one of them is having a, a point guard who can just drill that shot or who can attack, you know, do the dribbles. I mean, you could think of Dame Willard or Steph Curry or any number of other guys there using the small who can do it or can drive by or whatever. The other way to do it, bringing up Jokic again, is by, is by having the screener be able to take advantage of that and so that you're hesitant to switch. And if Boncaro can do that, it creates different opportunities, honestly, if he's a four instead of a five, just because, I mean, we've seen the Hawks and a few other teams do plenty of screening action with the four, but it's it's still something that you can use really well. 
Yeah, no, I agree with that totally. I'll be interested to see if Duke actually does that. Like, I, I, I just don't know that they will at the end of the day because uh, that that's like not been a consistent part of their offense over the course of their just like run under coach K and that's not like a shot at coach K it's just not really what they do like you saw last year like Jalen Johnson I don't want to say he like he did struggle I don't know that it was because of Duke's offensive fit I think it was more Jalen related issues but I think that there is some there's probably some room he's going to be playing next to a really great big man who I also have as a first round pick and Mark Williams Uh, Mark Williams is just like enormous inside and takes up space I'll be very interested to see if uh, to see what Paulo looks like as a finisher this year, given that he will often be uh, be playing with someone that's going to take up as much space inside as he's going to. The other player who has been most frequently discussed as a viable number one pick is Chet Holmgren. Holmgren has been on the draft radar for a long time. I mean, he is somebody that I've seen. I saw him in Colorado Springs years ago. I believe he was a junior, high school, sophomore, high school, junior at the time, going to Gonzaga. And Holmgren, you could make an argument, I think I would, that he is hurt, that he is hurt by the kind of the evolution of the NBA. Because like, if you went back 20 years, 30 years, like a player who's 7'1", who has some of the defensive tools that he does, even though he's skinny as all get out would be there. But there is that question of, I, I don't know, do you agree with me? Or do you think that because of the skill development that Chet has, that he can, he can, he benefits from the modernness? He definitely benefits from the modern NBA. Uh, he also is, look, like, I, I just don't know what Chet's going to look like at the college level in terms of defense, because I will tell you this, like, I don't know that I've seen certainly among these, com- like these very skinny prospects, these skinny big. I've definitely never seen someone who is as competitive as he is like he wants to block every shot he contests every single shot when he's inside like there he is totally fearless he is unafraid of getting dunked on in a real way. I, he like he initiates contact inside. It sounds weird for someone who's seven foot one, one hundred and ninety pounds, but like he's very comfortable initiating contact. It doesn't always work. He doesn't always have the best contact balance, but he's comfortable doing it, which I think is a really good sign if he can continue to put on weight long term. I'm pretty worried about the frame, to be honest, but he's so skilled as an offensive player. Like he can handle the ball out on the perimeter. I think Paulo's a little bit better as like a half court ball handler creating his own shot. But in terms of like being able to grab and go and like he can do Chet can do more creative things off the bounce. Uh, whereas like Paulo's is a little bit more functional. I think that he has so much skill level development. Plus he's seven foot one with ridiculous length as opposed to Paulo. Who's like your run of the mill six foot 10 guy with like a seven foot one wingspan. Like, I think that he's skilled enough to make it work. I think he's definitely going to shoot it. Uh, if not like from a 37% level this year, he'll get there at some point. I love how tough he is. I love the rim protection potential he has. I, I just worry that it's, 
I, I worry about the frame substantially. Uh, look, if he was entering like the 1990s era of the NBA, I think he'd really struggle just given the physicality. Yeah, given era. how big everyone was. That, that's a like thickness wise. Yeah, like I, I think that he's definitely better suited to answer your question. Like I think he's definitely better suited for now. But in terms of mentality, like he would be suited to play in that era. It's just whether or not his body long term is going to let him play the way he wants to play because I have just an immense amount of respect for the way that he wants to play every single night. Like I, I am a big fan. I think he certainly has the most upside of any player in this class. It's just whether or not his frame lets him hit that upside. Yeah. I was looking, I've been looking through the kind of the, the draft measurement histories to try to find try to find somebody who's kind of comparable and the only one that I'm seeing just over the last few years is actually Moses Brown in terms of just height and wingspan you know roughly 7-1 roughly 7-5 wingspan which is what I'm seeing for for Holmgren Moses Brown not the biggest guy in the world is 237 Holmgren is under 200 right yeah, like the the comp that a lot of people have made is Kristaps. Kristaps uh, was very skinny when he was 19 because if you remember, he entered the NBA when he was 21. Um, so he, he had like an extra year and a half of like physical development. And I've talked to like Larry Sanders was with him who used to work for the Bucks and uh, was training uh, him over, I believe, if I remember correctly, he's with Sevilla pre-draft. Um, and he like really went through and like worked with Kristaps to like gradually put on weight to where he is at least strong enough now. Like he's 240 pounds now, which is still like 50 pounds more than Jet, uh, but he's two inches taller. And I think that that's the hope that like he can gradually put on weight in the way that Kristaps did to at least develop some core strength. He's always going to be at like something of a disadvantage just due to the fact that he his frame is what it is, right? But can he overcome that disadvantage through skill and through just sheer aggressiveness? Like I I, I kind of think he has a shot to, but it, it's it's not going to be the easiest road for Chet Holmgren. I, I, but if it works, it's like really going to work at an exceedingly high level, I think. Yeah, and part of what makes Holmgren so intriguing as an NBA player is that I, I brought this up with Boncaro before, is that I think offensively, from what I've seen, he fits pretty seamlessly in the high pick and roll concepts. You know, like you're He's not the greatest screener because he's not as thick as you'd like. But in terms of having the game, if you're, you know, I, I was thinking about the Warriors-Lakers game, which occurred on Thurs- on on Tuesday night, and how if you're doubling or doing anything like that to the to the small, then you you want a big who can do something with the ball in their hands, whether that's make the jump shot or make a good decision or create create a, a take advantage of that mismatch and create a new one, ideally. And Holmgren has the building blocks to do that pretty well. And that's not the same as using him as the hub. Like I I brought up Jokic a couple of times during this and, you know, Jokic and Townsend and Embiid kind of have that kind of potential. And I haven't in the limited amount of time I've seen Holmgren, I haven't seen that potential from him, but being, being able to do something like it's the criticism I've levied on Clint Capella a lot over the years. It's like being able to do something positive when the ball is in your hands and there's already an advantage is so important in the NBA right now. And it's, I think it's only going to become more important over the next 10 years i will say uh we're, we're apparently gonna get some uh ob top in at center tonight interesting which i am ex- 
excited about because that is what he should be playing. He should be playing center. Um, and, and that kind of goes toward what you're saying, like having a center or a big with some ball skills. Uh I, I think it's such a bailout for offenses in today's NBA. Like it's it's still a real marginal efficiency to be able to have those guys that you know can shoot, can handle the ball, like a John Collins, right? Like that's why uh, Atlanta's offense probably works a little bit better when John Collins is the five. Obviously, like John Collins has gotten better defensively, but he's gotten better because he's a lot more rotationally aware and is a lot more mobile now uh, and more comfortable defending on the perimeter and getting bend in his ability to slide uh, than what he was you know, it necessarily early in his career, but man, I mean like being able to have some skill, some bailout ability, like Capella, you mentioned he got like, he got passable at it in Houston. Like he got like, okay. at being able to hit that like cross corner kick. Like that was when he was in Houston, that cross corner kick from the short roll in their offense was there every single play uh, to either PJ Tucker or to um, it was like house a little bit late in his tenure, but that pass was always there and it took him, I don't know how many years, three years to really like get to the point where he could make that pass consistently. Um, being able to make that pass, like I, I think is so critical, just being able to make the pass that is available to your offense. Like we saw last night and people will figure out what day we recorded this based off the way I'm speaking. I realized um, we saw last night with uh, Nemanja Bielitsa entering the Warriors scheme, right? We saw the value that having someone who can make high level passing reads from the center position be that out outlet for when teams blitz Stephen Curry uh teams typically don't blitz Stephen Curry when it's Draymond Green but they have for so many years been able to do that when anyone else sets a screen yeah like Kevon Looney or or Wiseman last year Right. With Bielitsa, I don't really think you can do that if they play him as regularly as I think they might end up playing him. So I'm I'm intrigued. I'm very intrigued with what we saw from the Warriors last night. And it all goes toward what your point was, which I think was really smart. While we're thinking about the evolving nature of the center position, I mean, not all these guys are centers, but um, it's always been a hallmark for our conversations on this with Boncaro, Holmgren, Jalen Duran. Any of them you think viable as a switch defender? Oh, hmm. Chet moves his feet well, but has a bit of a high center of gravity, which I worry like smaller guards and wings might be able to leverage a little bit. Uh, Jalen Duran is interesting. Like, look, the comp for Duran is like Bam at a bio, but I don't think he is as twitchy as Bam is. Like, he's a bit heavier footed. And I kind of think that because he's 6'11, maybe 6'10 and a half, let's say, uh, with a 7'5 wingspan, he might just be better off playing a drop, like where you can get the full extent of his rim protection. He is a very good rim protector. He has really earned and developed the uh, motor that comes with having to play the center position. Like it took him a little bit of time early in his career. He turned it off and on for sure. Uh, but uh, I think that over the course of the last couple years of his career, he's really kind of navigated that and made it to the point where he is much better at consistently playing hard. Um, I think that like there's a world where he could switch I don't know if I feel great about him switching, if that makes sense. 
It does. And Duran got, I, I to me, like in terms of, you know, again, much more casual, especially in this stage on it in the draft, he got a lot more attention after Memphis's pro day because it was this, you know, it, it, when teams actually do this and full credit to Penny for, for putting this on, that they do real measurements and all that. And everybody was excited to see this as an extremely talented group of players. And Amani Bates, his measurements did not exactly line up with, with what people were hoping for, though I'm sure it wasn't as big a surprise to you. But then Duran just being like, oh crap, this guy has like a, has a big wingspan. This guy has the, you know, like kind of has the physical tools. It became a lot more viable for him to potentially be a five. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, look, neither of those measurements came as a surprise to me. I think I, Jalen Duran listed like 6'10 with a 7'4 wingspan. He came in 6'11, 7'5 wingspan. Um, I've had Imani Bates at the 2019 Nike Basketball Academy came in at 6'7 with a 6'7 wingspan. Uh, That's why the Kevin Durant comparisons have always been like just totally foolhardy. Uh, I know that he came. I think that like he was six foot nine in there uh, in the Memphis measurements. I, I think that those Memphis measurements were with shoes. Uh, and I think the Nike Basketball Academy measurements were without shoes. So I do believe that they are consistent measurements. Um, it, it's yeah. I mean, I'm a little bit worried about Imani long term, but I, I've I've been worried about Imani long term for a while now. And I've made those points clear and i hope that he is able to navigate what is going to be like a an interesting potentially difficult start to his career uh we'll see so i know after and i encourage everybody to read the mock draft and the, the write-ups that you've done for the athletic you feel a lot more a lot less confident after this top top three and i mean even we've talked about the limitations of this group I'm not going to ask you kind of who you like best because people can read that, can read that in there. But taking that aside, if we made the only criteria, which other prospect is most likely to have the type of season that puts them firmly in the mix to be the number one pick? So basically kind of like who has the highest immediate ceiling of everyone else? Look, I... I uh, uh, hmm. <laughs> it's hard. Like, am I judging against like this class or like a normal class? Like, I, I think I would say that if AJ Griffin is healthy and if he is what he was at the U16 FIBA Americas tournament that occurred in 2019, if my memory serves, he is he has like real upside. Uh, he is six foot six. He's seven foot wingspan. He has a chiseled frame that will have no problem translating to the NBA. He is uh, a real conscientious defender. Uh, he has some real shot creation abilities, has showcased some passing in the past. Like he, he has all of the tools, but it feels ridiculous to bring up AJ Griffin within this conversation because like he's barely been seen in 18 months. Like he, he might end up being like the 30th overall pick. He might end up being the number one overall pick. Uh, I've heard really good things about Jabari Smith out of Auburn, uh, six foot 10 spacing four can create his own shot a little bit, but not quite as well as someone like Paulo, uh, in the tape that I've seen. Um, much more switchable onto perimeter wings, uh, good weak side rim protector. Uh, I think there is a world where he, and he will shoot. Like I have no doubts that he'll shoot it long-term uh, at that size. I think there's a world where he could go number one overall as well, but this is kind of a class that doesn't have a traditional number one overall like guy as we enter the season, I think. 
And that's what made me think, just from the limited amount I know about him, that Jaden Hardy could work his way into the mix. This is going to be a different G League Ignite season compared to the last one, but... That scoring guard, it's it's not the archetype that is that you and I value the most, but a very good player at it can be very valuable. And we, you know, we're a few hours away from Jalen Green making his NBA debut. And yeah, you'd love that wing, whether that's AJ Griffin or Pat Baldwin or Watson, the UCLA guy, like you'd love for that guy to take a step forward. But Hardy, like if he can put the ball in the bucket at that volume and looks like he has enough athleticism, is he, I, I know he's not a green level of athlete, right? No, no, I've been more saying like Bradley Beal level athlete. And okay. I think Beal often gets a little bit underrated as an athlete. Um, but not uh, not like a nuclear, to quote you and Nate, like crazy athlete by any stretch. I believe that's us taking it from Jay Billis, if memory serves, um, going back. I could be wrong on that. But yeah, this is a... Shh, shh. No, it's you. It's you. <laughs> Hey, I'll, I'll I'll take I'll take credit for the things the things that I created, including the hilarious one. Oh God, what? Oh yeah, the um, why can't I just remember it? The 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 Hinky special, like that was one that I w- w- led to this funny thing when I'm I was I don't know if I've told the story on the podcast that Zach Lowe used it. And I'm like, where did that come from? And I so I searched it. I'm like, oh, it came from me, <laughs> which was which was delightful. And um, it was it was so, like I mean that was. I think like three or four entities ago, and as some people know, I don't change I don't change writing spots that often. Um, so that was it was a while back, but it's it's going to be interesting to see how this class works itself out. They should have something closer to a normal season, which I think is really good for them, and that means there will be movement over the course of the year, and I'm, I'm excited to see that. Um, but as we are on the the precipice, um, I will leave some of the more NBA specific conversations to a future conversation that the two of us are going to have on a different forum, probably, hopefully. But we spent so much time talking about the 2021 draft, and I wanted to get your thoughts on how this group has looked for you, summer league and in the preseason. Really good. I, I mean, look, like summer league was great, and. I thought that the guys who I expected to play well in summer league played well. Uh, in the preseason, I think that, look, we haven't seen Cade yet, right? Because of the ankle injury. Uh, Jalen Green looks exactly like what I expected. A guy who's going to score some points and is uh, going to cause some real defensive question marks for Houston early in the year. Um Scotty Barnes has looked a little bit better than what I thought he would early. I figured he would play from the jump because he is so good defensively uh, that it's just worth having him on the court. But he looks a little bit more polished offensively. I, I know that uh, pre-draft, he did a lot of work over in Santa Barbara with like the folks over at P3 and um, his uh, trainer for pre-draft, uh, I believe is Packy Turner. Like th- they've done, uh, they've done a lot of work with Scotty on skill development and stuff. And I'm sure he has his own trainers as well. I don't, I don't mean to necessarily just um, call out those guys that I, I know of. Like, I'm sure he works with more than just some uh, other players that I know that some trainers get a little bit touchy with that stuff from time to time. Um, so uh, look, I, I think that Scotty Barnes has looked a little bit further ahead offensively than what I thought he would. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that this is going to be a really strong rookie class this year. Like Davion Mitchell is going to come in and play immediately. Uh, did you please, please tell me that you saw what Cam Thomas did last night, Danny. 
I actually did. I was trans. I was transitioning to deal with something, but I did not see it last night, unfortunately. Danny, it, it was it was the most on brand, like funniest fucking thing in the world. Cam Thomas comes in his first offensive possession. Javon Carter like drives, and I think that I think that Cam was supposed to take like a pin down in space out beyond the three point line, but instead he curled. And brought his man right to the area where Javon Carter was driving. And he just like kind of stopped in the mid range, like 18 foot area for a bailout pass. Javon threw him the bailout pass and he immediately fired from like 18 feet. (laughs) His second possession, he got the ball in the corner, took like 10 dribbles and eventually got like double teamed and turned the ball over. So still has not yet completed a pass. His third possession uh, was when the Bucks finally uh, decided to take out like Giannis and all of their stars. So Thanasis fouled him and he got to go to the foul line and he shot. Uh, two free throws and then his fourth touch and these were the only four touches he had all game were his fourth touch was a catch and shoot three from the corner that he missed so he had four minutes he took two shots two free throws turned the ball over once and completed zero passes uh the question i asked john hollinger earlier today was will ryan fitzpatrick or cam thomas complete more passes this season amazing amazing <laughs> Let's go to a guy who's going to complete more passes. I still haven't seen as much Josh Giddy as I want because he missed Summer League and I missed most of the preseason. But the parts I saw were definitely intriguing. And NBA Chalmay has some, some work to do because he's going to be, you know, the jump shot and everything else. But if you can make good passes... There, it's this weird, it's this weird nether region for me where I've gotten into trouble over the years of like tall guys who can pass, and I'm 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 at least intrigued, but it's also like being a part of this funhouse mirror bizarro thunder team is going to make this even stranger. Oh, NBA Chalamet, what an absolute, what an absolute king, what a fun player. Uh, yeah, you're right. Like I've, you definitely do love the big ball handler. Uh, the thing that I have questioned with josh slightly like i I had josh as a lottery grade like i I really like him a lot as a player um it's just whether or not he can consistently get penetration at the nba level like i think he has a bit of a high handle i think he has uh just a bit of uh, not quite as much like shake with the ball is what you'd like to see but man like it doesn't matter because he can throw passes from any freaking angle on the court that you can imagine at any point it's just like I'm very interested to see what the uh, see what the god NBA Chalamet looks like this year because it it could go really he's going to be he's guaranteed to be fun I can tell you that like he is going to be a blast to watch yeah and there I mean this Thunder team is just so bizarre when you think about all the players who like I mean you have you have Shea who's already when when available an incredible creator but then you have all these other guys who kind of it seems like they want the ball in their hands. In some cases, they're probably best that way because they're limited shooters, getting included in that group. So I have no idea how their ecosystem is going to work. I like Dagnall a lot as a coach. I thought he looked, I thought his stuff looked very good in his first year. Yeah. And they're not trying to be good. So I think that you can make a lot of the, you know, a lot of the stuff that the fit issues don't matter. I think sometimes people focus on that. Now it is good to have a viable system so that you can kind of get a sense of what these guys are and what they will be. But for Oklahoma City, you know, I I think it's conceptually, I mean, they have to actually be good, but you need to 
be willing to roll the dice to just see what comes up because yeah a lot of these guys you could argue in an ideal world are duplicative but some of them aren't going to hit and then those questions might just resolve themselves yeah definitely like i I, i'm so interested in what oklahoma city is doing because like i'm sure that you've talked about extensions on this podcast at some point like in the recent past but like we saw Jonas Valanciunas get an extension today that you felt was an underpay, right? I think it's reasonable is about where I would put it. Yeah, like I, I think that he's like better than Clint Capella and Clint Capella just got like $22 million on his extension number. Um, I understand that like totally different players, right? But uh, I think being able to get Valanciunas at $15 million a year, like those are great numbers. And on top of it, they maintain the ability to trade him uh, within the next six months because uh, the number, it was like what? It was like an 8% raise, wasn't it? On the number that he's making this year. That sounds right, yeah. Yeah, so I kind of wonder if the DeAndre Ayton non-extension played a role in some of these in some in like Jonas Valanciunas getting extended because New Orleans may have felt like hey let's just lock in our guy now you know we're gonna be competing against other teams for Aiton you know potentially if we want to try and sign DeAndre or like the other teams that are going to be competing for Aiton the other teams that are going to have cap space like the Thunder like Detroit um look like Charlotte isn't listed is a team that has max max cap space now but like it's not going to be hard for them to create like we saw this summer like max cap space is a figment of our imagination now right like you're telling me that if deandre ayton goes to phoenix and says i really don't want to be here that phoenix wouldn't take terry rosier in like a sign-in trade from charlotte right like that that's how easy it is for Charlotte to be able to create max cap space. And then they have a long-term center of the future for, um, for LaMelo Ball to build around. I I will say, I think it would take more for the Suns to give up Aiton. And you, you talked about this. I mean, we both had kind of different areas. No, I I agree with you that it would take more than Terry Rozier, but I'm saying like to match in terms of the math. Sure. 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 Like that's easy. Um, But, the the Aiton situation, there are a couple of wrinkles there that are absolutely fascinating. I actually let's let's save that for when we for when we talk on game theory because that's I think a, a really yeah. I, it's fertile ground for the for the two of us there. Um, but in terms of the, the the pending rookie class, I'm one of the like challenges of rookies for t- for somebody who watches a team you know like game in game out you know so like for for the people who have more you know are more singularly focused than the two of us are. It, it can be sometimes hard to see the forest, you know, to see the forest for the trees. The idea, the idea basically being that these players are mostly negative, that things aren't working out, but you're not looking for that. You're looking for these flashes and maybe it's sustained play in certain periods of time. And that will be so interesting in this class for guys like Mobley and Jalen Suggs and potentially Jonathan Kaminga, where they they could potentially play important roles on their teams and at times they could their limitations could be more important we'll see i think i think Scotty Barnes is going to also have a much bigger part to play for the next little while until Pascal Siakam is available like that is a latitude it's sort of the reverse of what Kerr is getting with Wiseman this year if it's like well let's try our rookie before the other guy gets back in and then we can evaluate versus let's try things without our second year guy and then we'll figure out where he fits in after that 
Yeah, yeah. Like you, you bring up the Warriors. The Warriors are a really fascinating example of that because they obviously have Jonathan Kaminga. They drafted Jonathan Kaminga ahead of Moses Moody. Moses Moody is in the rotation uh, earlier than Jonathan Kaminga. And I don't think anyone's really surprised by that. Like that didn't surprise you, right? No. Because of just the way that their games are. Uh, Jonathan Kaminga is more of a shot creator and it's harder to get a shot creator on the court uh, whenever you already have like guys like Draymond Green and Stephen Curry, whereas Moses Moody uh, is someone that is more of an off-ball player, catches and shoots, attacks closeouts, you know, bit of a more reliable rotation defender at this point. Um, But the thing with the Warriors is that I'm sure that teams, like, does it help them to not play their rookies early does it help them to play their rookies early and try to showcase their value already uh because look like they've said for a while now that they're committed to younger to going with like a youth movement right like they they want james wiseman moses moody jonathan kaminga to emerge and take some pressure off of uh you know draymond green clay thompson and stephen curry as those guys age and they, they want to keep them they've been very clear about that but i mean look if if bradley beal comes available like at some point that's going to be a real conversation and is it better for the warriors to rely solely on what they think like the wizards preconceived notions of guys like moses moody and jay or uh, jonathan Kaminga were pre-draft before they've seen them play professional basketball or is it better for them to try and play them and take the risk that maybe they aren't as good early on like that, that it's such a it's such a fascinating question to me as we start early on especially with these teams that are kind of in like the middle of being they're clearly good teams but are they competitive for an NBA championship teams like the Warriors could very easily get competitive for an NBA championship in a hurry and look they might be already once Clay comes back like if Clay returns at 90% of who he is because he's fucking Wolverine like it, it might be fine right but but what do teams like the Warriors decide to do with their youngsters? What does what do the Kings decide to do with Davion Mitchell? Like Davion Mitchell has earned minutes, and I would imagine that he's definitely going to play. Does he play 15 minutes or does he play 30 minutes as a rookie as maybe they try to showcase him as someone that could move like in a Ben Simmons deal if they really want to go out and try and get Ben Simmons, right? Um, Scotty Barnes, same deal. Like Scotty Barnes, um, I don't know if they would move him in a Ben Simmons deal. Like they seem very excited by him, but like Toronto is in a fascinating position where they could pretty easily transition into being a rebuilding team, or they could transition into being a uh, team that competes for a top four seed. Like I, I think there are so many teams in the middle this year that have these interesting rookies that I don't necessarily know what it's going to look like in terms of like who plays a lot of minutes, who doesn't. Right. And it's, a fascinating point and it I think generally speaking if the team has aspirations like the Warriors do then what you you your your loyalty primarily lies in just build you know see, seeing if those guys can help and if they can't then I then I don't think you're going to move their calibrations of their value too dramatically I think uh, front offices are going to lean significantly more heavily on their scouting before the draft especially for guys that were so recently selected but there are also, like as you brought up with Scotty Barnes, like these teams that need to decide what in the world they are. And I think for those teams, you need to play your guys, your young guys more because you need to figure out how they fit in. And so for the Raptors, I mean, I've brought up the point previously that 
they have so many guys, like un- an unusually large number from Fred Van Vliet, arguably Gary Trent, depending on how you feel about his contract, and probably not Siakam at this point because his contract is so rich, but like an OG, obviously, if you wanted to go that direction, who not only makes sense on good teams, but makes sense at their current salary on good teams. And so if Masai Ujiri, armed with his new power and his, you know, his long-term contract, wants to tear it down, he can. Now that teardown can include trading Scotty Barnes or it cannot, my expectation would be that it would not. But it brings about a whole a whole other set of possibilities. And that's part of part of why Mobley's situation is one that I'm keying on as well, because they gave Jared Allen a ton of money. And they also made the decision, you know, as involved in the Larry Dance trade to Larry Markkinen. Markkinen has three fully guaranteed years and then a partially guaranteed fourth season. And there are ways to make that three-headed monster work that you, you know, that, and, and I think that, that over time, Kobe Altman, J.B. Bickerstaff, and the Cavs are going to need to figure out what Evan Mobley's ideal role is offensively and defensively. But they still have to figure that out. Like, I mean, you, they, I think the Cavs, unless they think they're going to be way better this year than I think they're going to be, there's not the, <laughs> there, there's not the downside, you know, the risk of like, oh, he's going to really drag us down. Like, you know, cause most rookies are negative players, but for those, I think he's more in the camp, more like Jalen Green, maybe more like Cade, though I think Cade Cunningham is a different type of rookie than a lot of these guys, where in Mobley's case, you need the information because the information is valuable, and the downside, like b- c- contrasting with what you said about the Warriors, is the downside risk is functionally non-existent. I'll, I'll say this, though, like... So, A, I think you're much higher on the Cavs being able to figure out how to make Lowry, Jared Allen, Evan Mobley. I'm, on s- I'm saying it is conceptually court. possible. That is all I am saying. <laughs> um, on the court, it's conceptually possible to make that work. And, and but for the clarity, I'm not saying as, a, as a, I'm not saying at, that all of them play together. I'm saying more that you can get yeah. 48 minutes combined at two positions out of the three of them. Yeah, totally. And I, I agree with that point. You can do that. I worry more about roster building when you're paying that much money to those guys. Although Lowry's deal will obviously end before um, you have to pay Evan Mobley substantial amount of money. The problem there, though, is that for these first two years, you have Kevin Love's album trust deal like weighing down their flexibility right um it's just it's it's hard i guess that they're gonna have one summer to like really uh really try and like change the trajectory a little bit uh, and that but like that's gonna come in the summer where theoretically they should have paid darius garland already maybe they don't have a summer i don't know they're, they're gonna have to make some tough decisions though and where i think the, the reason i bring all of this up they kind of do need to figure out what evan mobley is at least they need to figure out if enough flashes are there and frankly like i think that they are there like i, I think that evan mobley is going to be great i think he's going to be an all-star level big um but they do need to figure out if he is flashing like it's not going to be consistent this year i don't think but is he flashing the all-star level skill often enough to where they feel like he can be a secondary creator for them offensively and they need to see okay does he work better right now with darius garland or colin sexton i think it's going to be darius garland uh i i know that like some Cavs fans got a little bit frustrated when i wrote that like I really like the sets when the Cavs use Darius Garland off the ball a little bit more because 
they felt like Darius has uh, too many moments where he just kind of stands around off the ball. I understand that, and I think it's a valid concern when he's not involved in the primary set. But when Darius like knows the ball is coming back to him and they're getting him the ball on the move, uh, like they're running a dribble handoff where he's going to you know, either take a dribble handoff or Evan Mobley slash last year it was Larry Nance um, and Kevin Love and Dean Wade often as well. Um, if he knows that he's going to be involved in that primary action, he actually does like move pretty well, I think. And I, I love those sets where they utilize him as an off-ball player because you get the threat of his shooting. Uh, teams have to stay close on him because if you don't stay close on him, he is going to knock down shots. Like He can shoot on the move. He played off the ball like for the first three years or two and a half years of his high school career and then developed point guard skills uh, and took over Bradley Beal elite uh, really like partway through his 16 and under year and then like all of his 17 and under year. So I kind of look at what the Cavs are building and trying to figure out what's going to work for them long term. I think that they would be smart to find out, does Evan Mobley have real real chemistry with one of Darius Garland or Colin Sexton? Like, if you find that he has real chemistry with Colin Sexton and, like, that that's really going to work, that could genuinely, like, change some of your team-building strategies moving forward. And you have to make a decision on Colin Sexton within the next, what do we want to call it? Like six months, let's say. Like you probably need to know what you're going to do with him going into restricted free agency. You maybe don't have to move him at the trade deadline if you really want to keep him. But maybe that is maybe that's it. Maybe you need to know by the trade deadline if he has some chemistry with Evan Mobley, right? Yeah, and you'd, you, I think that you, there's also a possibility with Sexton of playing the string out and. I think that with his scoring, there's probably a team that would be interested in giving him the type of offer sheet that would make the Cavs sweat, especially if they think he's gettable. You know, like that can sometimes be yep. an important differentiator there versus, let's say, the I, I bring up the Marcus Smart restricted free agency a lot, where part of the reason he got burned was not only the idea that restricted free agency is about falling in love, but also because why would a team risk falling in love with somebody that they thought Danny Ainge was just going to match? Um, but a data point that I, I think is worth tracking this year for, for Garland is that he attempted roughly the same proportion of our same amount per game of catch and shoot threes and pull up threes. And as is common for most guys, he shot way better on the catch and shoot. He was 43% on catch and shoot threes and 36% on pull ups. Now, 36% on pull ups is impressive to me. I think that's, you know, that's another yeah. sign that, that he can get there. But the idea that you can shift that proportion that you can kind of strike a different balance, not only through Colin Sexton, but also through somebody like Evan Mobley is notable. And that, that could potentially open up some, some other directions for the Cavs. And it is also remarkable that they have used so much capital, both draft and in some cases, um, trade slash, you know, financial, like the money that they gave to Jared Allen. And I would argue that they do not have a natural small forward on their roster. Like they, you know, Okoro, I think of as more of a two than a three. And maybe some people think Jetty Osman can play the three. But that is pretty incredible unless like one of these other guys is different than I expect. And yes, maybe they can add that later. Maybe, you know, the Cavs are in the point in the draft where they can get one of those three, maybe whatever three they like best, like on your mock, that could be Griffin, that could be... 
Pat Baldwin, that could be Peyton Watson, but you know that's that's something that Cleveland is currently missing. Yeah, and I think they're missing a few of them. To be honest, like I think that they need more uh, more than one true wing, like with size that can defend multiple positions and can like slide down to the four and play a little bit smaller from time to time, right? Like. You don't just want one of those guys. You want multiple of those guys. Uh, And on top of it, those players tend to be the hardest thing to find uh, in the NBA. And then there's also like the conversation. Like, I I think like, I don't know. Like, do we think Kobe Altman is going to be the person making that choice? Uh, I don't I don't know. I don't think I don't think he I'm more confident that I don't think he should be than that. He will not be. I mean, that that depends on ownership and everything else yeah i think that ownership is going to be intrigued uh to see how they look this year like if they i think their over under was like 28 and a half like if they're around that level they're like he he, you would almost think he's probably going to get fired right like I, i can't imagine that he wouldn't right it I mean it seems like it's going that it it's going that direction and I don't know what they would be looking for in an ex general manager, but I mean Altman's had a lot of chances. And certain parts of it, like I criticize him a lot for the Larry Nance extension, that worked out very well. I mean Nance ended up being a good part of it. I think they actually yeah. personally I think they got too little for him, but you know, he helped them. He became a, a very positive value on that contract. Yeah, and, they, they nailed that deal. It was just that they then transitioned it into this marketing deal instead of yeah. like multiple first round picks. Sure. I, I would agree with that. And so I don't know, you know, I, I had an extended conversation with our mutual friend, Jared Dubin, about this idea of expectations and whether there there is a point where it doesn't really matter whether from the people whose thoughts on this matter, which is typically ownership and maybe a couple other people involved, it doesn't really matter whether their expectations are reasonable or not, because their expectations are what affect the decisions that they make. And so for right. various teams in this process, Cleveland is one of those. Sacramento is one of those with, with how Vivek feels about this team. I think we're a Vivek! little bit, I think we're a little early for Chicago to do anything crazy if if this doesn't work out too well but washington and a couple others like there there are some real some real question marks in terms and and potential trouble spots the the lower half of the western conference is just chock full of these with new orleans probably being the the head of the table in terms of what could be a margin between what the people who matter expect this season to look like and what it very well might look like yeah no i think that that's absolutely a really good point uh the Kings are like kind of the prime example because they're dealing with this Marvin Bagley situation now, which is uh, uh, J- Jeff Schwartz does not speak often, but when he does, his voice carries weight. Um, the, the Kings, like it'd be great if they had another year to like see if Marvin Bagley can be anything. They've given like, and look, they've given Marvin Bagley chances, right? Like I, I know that, People close to Marvin feel like that's not the case, but they have like he started 42 games last year. Like he played 26, 27 minutes a night last year. Like he got the opportunity uh, and just isn't good enough yet. And that makes more sense for him with a coach that makes more sense for him as well. Uh, Luke Walton, I think 
you and I would both agree, not the not the pinnacle of NBA coaching, right? I would agree with that. Um, well, and, and part of part of it for it Bagley, work, I mean, but like, I, I agree with you that Bagley's had the chances. Um, but I also part another kind of component of this for him is I know that they would that Schwartz and XL would love to see him in a situation that's right for Bagley right now. There is also an argument that being somewhere that doesn't really want you heading into restricted free agency as a high draft pick is actually a good thing because they are more willing to just say, fine, and just let you go. This is, you know, the Frank Nilkina part of this, that if you if the team is more invested and thus more frustrated, then he I think there's a very significant chance that if Marvin Bagley ends this season as a restricted free agent, that he that or sorry, if he ends the season on the Kings, that he start that he becomes an unrestricted free agent. And that gives him the world is his oyster. Like that would actually be I would be as Schwartz, like that's what I would be hoping for more. Though I understand that he, you know, advocating for his client is looking more f- to get him in a better situation before July second. Yeah, I was gonna say, like that that's the thing though. Like it worked out so well for Frank Nilakina that he signed a two-year, $3.8 million deal. That's fair. Right? Like, I think that – and look, Marvin's made money already. Like, that's the thing about being the number two overall pick. Like, I think that by the end of this year, he's going to end up being, like, 40, right around, like, the $40 million mark. Yeah, right? at least 35. Uh, I mean, he's making he's making eleven three this year. Yeah, so that's, like, not – an insubstantial amount of money. Like Frank was probably around like, you know, 15, 16, I would guess is the number eight overall pick. Uh, It really spikes when you're the number two overall pick. So I think that maybe you are right. Like he's made enough money. He really just needs to find a spot where he can go like short term, like maybe almost like Nerland's Noel, right? Like uh, try and parlay a minimum deal into a longer term deal somewhere. But it's really hard to come back from that, I think. And I, I understand why Jeff Schwartz would want to get Marvin into a better system before restricted free agency in order to try and like expedite that process because you're essentially starting brand new once you're in that like uh, minimum vortex, right? Yeah, I think I think that's totally fair. I'll I'll leave I'll leave you with this question about the 21 class. I you know when I do the division capsule podcast, I I the, typically the last question I ask is picking breakout candidates, and the way I define it is players that we will talk about meaningfully differently a year from now than we are right now. So it, let's exclude like the top the top five picks or so. You know those type of guys. Sure. But, but who do you who do you see in this class? Partially based on role partially based on just what they are as a player that this year because i mean remember most rookies are negative players like that's just the way this works out and you can have that and still be taught we can talk about you differently because you show some flashes or everything else like there are lots of different ways that can work out but who are you keying on as being potential guys that can really change the conversation yeah look i think i had trey murphy higher than anyone else in the public sphere at least like i had him i think at like 15 pre-draft um, he went 17. Most people had him at like 20 or so. Um, he looks awesome. He's I really awesome like since, Trey Murphy. Yeah, he's looked awesome since Summer League. He's looked good in the preseason. I think we're going to look at him and be like, why in the hell did this guy not go in the top 10? Uh, I, I like he is a six foot nine, legit floor spacing shooter who is conscientious defensively, has real length, has the ability to switch. Like, 
Yeah, I, I think that the conversation around him, like, I think he should be starting for the Pelicans, like, tonight. And Willie Green is doing that thing where, like, he hasn't revealed his starting lineup. Uh, you know, we're, we're probably 30 minutes away from that happening. Um, I, I think he should be in their opening night starting lineup. And I think that he should be uh, a double-digit scorer as a rookie who plays, like, solid defense and makes 40% of his threes. Like, And if he does that, it's going to be – I think he's, like, a higher upside version of what Sadiq Bey was for Detroit last year. And Sadiq Bey kind of changed the conversation about himself. Uh, yeah. I would say he definitely qualifies last year. Yeah. So I think that Trey Murphy would be one pick. Um, Yeah. I I liked what I've seen of Isaiah Jackson. I just don't know how often he'll play. uh, Yeah. I I agree. I agree. Like when I saw Jackson in summer league, I'm like, Oh, this guy is talented. Like I, I thought he, I thought he looked good. You know that I've been a Josh Christopher stand for a long time, and the difference with him is he might actually get the opportunity because Houston has no qualms about playing nobody. all of their young guys. <laughs> and they have nobody else on that roster, uh, especially once Eric Gordon gets sent to Siberia or another NBA team, hopefully for his case. And then um, the other group that I'm going to keep an eye on, I mean, a hallmark of our conversations over the last three, four years has been the value of wings. Which of these kind of forward-sized players of Kaminga and Franz Wagner and Barnes and Jalen Johnson and Trey and you know which of these guys uh, yeah I'll give you one now that I think about it like I think Jeremiah Robinson Earl he's probably closer to like a four or five than like the true wing that you're talking about but he'll be more of a four I, I think people are going to wonder how he went in the second round he's going to play I mean we um, know that for, and and for people to remember, he was also a part of one of the single more the strange, single strangest trades that we've seen in modern vintage, where OKC gave up. I think it was they gave up thirty four. They gave up thirty four and thirty six to move up to thirty two. So you yeah. can tell they like him because that's a lot of draft capital to give up for somebody who's just you know who basically you're betting that the Clippers you're saying the Clippers were going to take him. Yeah, I think that that was a deal that happened after Santi Aldama went 30 to Memphis. Um, I think that they may have wanted to like earmark one of those picks for him and then maybe take a Robinson Earl. But maybe I'm wrong on that. Like maybe I'm mis misreading kind of the tea leaves on some of the things that I've been told. Um, yeah, I think that Jeremiah Robinson Earl is going to be really, really good this year. And... I think he's going to be really valuable for their rotation. I, I can't imagine that he's not going to play. Like I, like I'll, I had him ahead of Trey Mann on my board. They took Trey Mann fourteen slots ahead of him. Uh, I, I thought he was much better than Trey Mann. I'm not really a Trey Mann guy though um th- it's funny like a lot of the guys that I like like I just worry that they're not going to get opportunity like I've heard really good things about Herb Jones like in camp but how is Herb Jones going to play with the Pelicans is kind of my worry uh, I really love Deuce McBride I thought he had a great summer league uh I he's like their fourth point guard right so how is he going to play um it's just like kind of hard to find like there are some guys that I think could really Jared Butler might be the prime example of this right Uh, Jared Butler has looked amazing in the preseason I had a top 20 grade on him I know he fell due to the injury concerns Um, like he looks incredible right now 
but how is he going to play? Because they have all of Donovan Mitchell, Mike Conley, Jordan Clarkson, Joe Ingles ahead of him. Like not all of those guys are going to play every game and he's going to be able to step in in games where they don't play. But man, like uh, he should be playing for an NBA team in a rotation right now. And it's just hard because he's on like the exact wrong team to be playing. Yeah, it's I mean, the general concept, though, is that these things will work out over time, that if he's if he's good enough, the Jazz will create will create the opportunity. And while Butler is older than some of those guys, because he's already 21, um, this will be his age 21 season. There's still lots of time from there. So I, I'm I'm keeping an eye on that one as well. And uh, it's it's going to be such a such an, a, a notable year in terms of movement and what and you know we kind of see where things are what's setting the table for future years and this is you know the closest thing we've had hopefully knock on wood to a normal season so we get the opportunity not only to evaluate these rookies but the guys over the last couple of years as well yeah definitely um and maybe we'll talk about the other guys at some other point just because uh we're, we're running long and i know you have an out here coming up yes. but yeah this is uh this is a fun nba season like i'm i'm thrilled for this NBA season to be starting. Like there are so many fun storylines. There are so many fun teams. It feels really open in my mind in terms of who could win the title. Like there are just like, there are so many reasons to be excited about this NBA season. I I am, uh, I am really pumped to watch it. Yeah, I am. I'm extremely excited too. Thank you so much for taking the time. Of course, Danny, anytime. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at The Athletic, and you can also listen to the Game Theory podcast that he does, which alluded to on this, I'm going to be a guest on in the very near future. Don't know the exact timing there, but we're going to talk about some of the NBA topics. Thought it'd be fun to do kind of a home and home. So you can expect to hear me on Game Theory at some point in the very near future, potentially by the time you've listened to this, depending on when you do that. You can also, of course, if you don't already, follow Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love having him on. And I, you know, if you if you're interested in the kind of day-to-day NBA stuff, that's mostly going to be on Dunk on, which you can listen to with me with with Nate. And I think of Real GM Radio as kind of a compliment to the other things that I do. More big picture. That doesn't mean it will be, you know, just all esoteric or anything like that. Definitely not. But especially over these first few weeks, I like to take a little bit of, of time to get stock and everything else. And so we'll keep an eye on that. That'll be the kind of the ebb and flow. But if you want to support this podcast, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode that's great in whatever podcast player you use, because the show's never going to come out on a specific day of the week. It's my availability, guest availability you can do it that way. Also, you can help other people find the show. That's leaving a rating and a review in the podcast player if you're choosing, Spotify, Apple, wherever, and just telling people, hey, this episode, this podcast in general is something you might enjoy, and that can really make a big difference. And you can also check out my other work, the aforementioned Dunked On, Dunked On Prime. So we do one free episode a week, and then we're back to the normal everything else, you know, four plus episodes a week being subscription and including our big breakdown of what I call League Pass opening night. And then it's now official, the NBA cast is back and Nate and I are going to be doing basically every Monday this year and we did yesterday on Wednesday we did the Wolves demolition of the Houston Rockets but we'll be doing Celtics Hornets is our first Monday game and you can keep an eye on that the timing will of course change depending on matchup but it'll be Mondays moving forward Nate and I absolutely love doing that and then I have a bunch of pieces in the offing um, with the athletic so you can keep an eye on that I'm kind of one of, what I, one of the things I want to do over the next few weeks is really set the table for for the 2022 offseason. And there's some, you know, now that the extensions are done, we have a lot of clarity on where 
things are going to start. We don't necessarily have clarity on where they're going to end, but we have that. And if you have any feedback on Real Jam Radio, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I would like to get better at responding, but I admit that's not my forte. But I do read everything, and I often reread everything. And I actually just reread a bunch of them, which I really do appreciate. And if it's constructive, I appreciate that too. And there was a bunch of that as well. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Healthy lifestyle depends on quality sleep, and Sleep Number is here to help you sleep more efficiently. Sleep efficiency is the amount of restful sleep you have at night and is a key part of your overall health. Here are some tips to help you get the most efficient sleep possible. Reduce caffeine consumption before noon and limit late-night alcohol. Get regular exercise during the day, which helps you feel tired in the evening. And keep track of your sleep health with data from your Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Sleepers who routinely use their Sleep Number 360 smart bed features get almost 100 hours more proven quality sleep per year. With that much extra energy, you could get more quality family time, volunteer at a meaningful charity, or exercise, meditate, and reconnect with nature. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep, which starts with Sleep Number Adjustability. It's time for Sleep Number's ultimate sleep number event. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed, plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com slash podcast one for details. Microsoft Surface Pro 8 has the power of a laptop and the versatility of a tablet, all in one. This thin and adaptable device has a touchscreen and a newly designed signature keyboard that can even store your Surface Pen. Surface Pro 8 is Microsoft's most powerful pro yet. Show the world how you stand out with Surface Pro 8. Check it out at surface.com slash surface pro 8.